This episode of the Planet Microcap podcast is brought to you by Friedman LLP, a top 40 global accounting, tax, and business consulting and advisory firm, providing a full spectrum of services for public and private companies since 1924. Contact Friedman when you will need to raise capital and adhere to U.S. standards. The Friedman partners will work diligently with you to provide the financial assurance, regulatory, and transactional services you need. When the stakes are highest, Friedman makes sure you are well equipped. For more information and to get a Friedman free consultation, please call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com. Again, for more information and a free consultation, call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome everybody to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for your support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. You're listening to episode 169. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. We are now one week away from the Planet Microcap Showcase virtual on April 20 through 22, 2021. I've started recording some of the keynotes and panels, and you are all in for a massive treat. Uh, All our speakers are on top of their game, and you do not want to miss out. Not only that, I know our presenting companies are putting together phenomenal presentations. To participate and find full details on the event, go to www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com. Registration is still open. It will be open throughout the duration of the event, but be sure to do that. Click the register button so that you can listen to every one of the webcasts on the day of its broadcast. So uh, go to www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com and I will see you all there. Now, for this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Julia Carrion. She is a longtime digital executive in financial services who now specializes in Gen Z. I'm a firm believer that as investors, business owners, evaluators of businesses, no question about it, you want to understand your investment's customer base and as business owners, your customer. As part of a generation, millennials, uh, that's been traditionally poo-pooed by most I was starting to see the same pattern happening with Gen Z, even falling for some of those easy criticisms myself. However, I wanted to break this thought process and better understand Gen Z as best I can. 
this conversation started with Caitlin Cook, uh, a Gen Zer herself. And we're now continuing that conversation with the claim writer, thinker, who has vast experience speaking at conferences and white paper author, Julia Carrion. We try our best to understand everything we can about Gen Z, but most importantly, in general, why it's important not to overlook what could be the most disruptive generation in human history. I do not say that lightly, but listen in and you will find out why. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 169 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my conversation with Julia Carrion. Welcome back, everybody, to the Planet Microcap podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And I- I'm really excited about our episode today. I know I say that every time. I'm always excited about every episode, but I actually am very much, I, I'm, I-, I am very excited about every episode, though. I-, I truly am. But I'm very excited about our topic today and what we're talking about. You know, we recently did an episode with with Caitlin Cook, kind of speaking anecdotally about Gen, the Gen Z investor, you know, I kept, you know, jokingly referring to her as our Gen Z correspondent. But, you know, here's our other Gen Z correspondent today that, you know, we're really going to dig into some data and really just get a better idea why this is uh, the next generation could be the ultimate disruptors. So joining me right now to discuss this topic is Julia Carrion. She is a longtime digital executive in financial services who is now specializing in Gen Z. So with that, Julia, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. It's great to have you on. Thank you for joining us. And my, my first question, this is my now first question I'm going to be asking everybody is, does, my, does the bookshelf look too tilted? <laughs> Should I... I don't know what to do. It's an Ikea crap. I'm not sure here. Sorry for anybody who's listening to this, but if you listen to the video, watch the video version. I, I tried setting up my background and the, what, what should I do? Well, it's not making me dizzy. And, and I think I mentioned earlier that I tend to have vertigo. And so it's not giving me vertigo. So I would say maybe just add a plant or something, a, a little small plant. I should add to it? Yes. Like maybe move maybe move some books away and add a plant is what I would do. But the photographs are lovely. But, I, but the thing is, is like the books are, I, I'm not going to look smart without the books there. So, <laughs> so you're telling me I got to put a plant instead of the books. Books are overrated right now. I mean, they're just too contrived. I'm just telling you the truth. You asked me to tell the truth. This is true. I did it. Not only did I ask you to tell the truth, I asked for Gen Z trends. So I'm assuming that's going to be a trend we're going to talk about that books are over. You know, should we start there? Are books overrated? Is that what is that? Is Nobody that reads. Coming? Nobody, Nobody reads really anymore. Reads. No. Oh, no. Not even on Kindles. <laughs> Maybe they do on Kindles. But yeah, nobody really reads. <laughs> Oh, geez. All right. Well, before we get into some trends, let's start with your background. You know, how, how did you arrive to where you're at today, focusing on this potential ultimate disruptor, the Gen Z, uh, this next generation here? You know, it's a, it's such a kind of a serendipitous and funny story. So people think that I am really into Gen Z because I have three Gen Z aged kids and actually, how I got here is the fact that I used to be young at one point. And when I was young, 
I really had some really cool ideas that I thought people should listen to. And what I found in financial services, especially, is that older generations, people in power were very dismissive of what younger people in the workforce had to say, didn't listen to it, thought they were the smartest people in the room, and silenced voices, I think, a lot. And now that I'm older and I um, see how much young people have to offer, I made a decision to be one of those adults that helped empower and enable them to be heard in a way that is relevant, not just to them, but to us as kind of human beings. So it's a, it's a funny thing. It's really my own confidence of the fact that I used to know stuff when I was young, right? And, and a lot of, you know, older people don't, don't um, see it that way. Interesting. Okay. So it, your passion for understanding this next generation better was because of your own experience where you were just like, I have all these ideas for how operationally or just anything can be improved. And it's just being, it was just ignored. That sucks. Yeah. So let me, let me give you a very explicit example. Um, 17 years ago, I was calling for omni-channel experiences. I was calling for removing friction from financial services. I was saying, don't chase shiny objects just for the sake of chasing them. Make sure you stay tethered to your core businesses, make them seamless. And I believe financial services would win if we did that. And what ended up happening is not a lot of that. And now as you see, um, what happened, I think, with Wall Street bets and other phenomenon in the marketplace, right? FinTech starting to finally take some market share from the big banks. It is because financial services did not innovate in a way to embrace digital like I think they should have. And I think there's a reason for that. And we can talk about that later. Well, I'd love, I mean, I'd love to hear like what should have they done at the time in order to be able to not lose the market share that they've, they've lost? Right. So... So I'm going to go, I'm going to answer that in kind of a funny way. So silent generation and baby boomers grew up with no touching and feeling and seeing of technology when they were very little. And we know the science is absolutely irrefutable that what we grow up with, like what we touch with our hands and see with our faces and hear with our ears shapes who we are as human beings. So the silent generation and the baby boomers for no fault of their own did not grow up with haptic memories. It's called haptic memory of technology. Gen X did to some extent, and then millennials did. And then right with the laptop, that's the primary haptic memory of a millennial. And then Gen Z has the smartphone. I really believe that Generation Z growing up with the smartphone is an absolute game changer. And what didn't happen with the with baby boomers and the silent generation who was in charge for so long, because they had no haptics of technology, they couldn't relate to it, right? So they couldn't see or believe that technology would be as important as it was or would be 20 years ago. And so you had younger generations trying to convince them that it was going to matter. And they let their own experiences overtake everything. 
right? What I see and feel and hear in front of me right now is what I believe the future will be. And a great example of that is the CEO of Blockbuster, right? Who refused to buy Netflix for 50 million bucks. Great documentary, right? Great documentary. I highly recommend everybody watch The Last Blockbuster on, I think it's called The Last Blockbuster on uh, Netflix. So good. So good. Sorry, I interrupted you. Continue. No, you're done. I, I want to talk about that. So, uh, you know, that to me was a great example of someone, right? The person in charge and the board could only see what they believed their experiences to be, and they were not embracing the next generation of preferences. And so that is, you know, um, I've seen it in my lifetime. And because I was frustrated by the lack of innovation in financial services kind of by the incumbents, not by fintech, but by the incumbents. I started blogging about Gen Z as a disruptor out of total frustration for the fact that we weren't listening to the fact that we are going to be irrelevant if we didn't engage in what future people wanted to do, you know, in terms of doing business with us. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because I, I talk about this a lot with um, a few other a few other guests that I've had on, uh, just especially when you think about microcap and like the frustrations that investors have had just being able to buy whatever they want, you know, buyer beware. You should have acted like it's especially when you think about in the last couple of years here with quote unquote shit coins and or altcoins that are just for shit companies and people were it was so easy to figure that out, to go in and buy some of this meaningless crap. And yet, you know, it, it's, it was an absolute nightmare to buy a pink sheet stock that actually might, you know, be generating revenues and be a good company. They just happen to not be fully reporting, you know, and, and it's so difficult to go and buy that, you know, so it's, it's, it's a conversation that I, I, I is, is just had ad nauseum in, in our microcap land. That's for sure. Well, yeah. And think about it. There's friction everywhere in these in in the ecosystems that surround all of this, right? There's friction in the oil and gas business, the legacy oil and gas, in asset management. It and and by friction, I mean it's just not easy to get something done, right? And so what I started thinking about is, my God, you know, I see our kids who are completely immersed, and I use, as you know, Angry Birds as my example, being three years old in 2010, playing Angry Birds when they stole their mom's smartphone out of their purse. Like everything about that experience is visually appealing, appeals to their ears, and it's easy. So, so what I think about that kid growing up and having to do business with a, you know, large financial services institution who wants them to fax 66 pages of documents to get a brokerage account open. And that still happens. Oh, and, and it's, I mean, look, it's getting even younger. I think about my daughter. She's what, 15 months already. And <laughs> she just spent the last year of her life in COVID pandemic barely able to see her grandparents on both sides. And, you know, she understands how to, like she, she could open the phone if she only had the facial recognition. She understands and that you have to do the touch screen now. You know, that's how you get access to this thing that mommy and daddy keep playing with. Exactly. And by the way, so your daughter is Gen Alpha. And alpha, I, okay, that's interesting. I was, that was going to be one of my questions for that. Oh, it was. Oh, well, we'll save it. But I, I just look at, I, I think Gen Alpha is going to be even better, uh, disruptors and rule breakers by the time they grow up. 
Oh, for sure. So I want to, because I want to, I'm, I'm, I think we're still in that setting the stage era or part of our interview where, you know, I'm, I want to, I want to understand better of like how, how we got to what the Gen Z, what this, what makes up a Gen Z person nowadays and what's important to them as an investor, as a consumer, all that stuff. But getting, but getting there, you mentioned how um, there, that it, these old industries where there is need for disruption and how they're just not listening to it. You have, you have to admit part of it is that haptic response is just because they, they didn't grow up with that experience of, of this new tech or even experiencing new tech to being open to new tech that they're stuck in there with. But I mean, there also has to be some, I'm sure you thought about this, that there's some financial constraint yeah. right? that's keeping them in their old ways. There's a lot of money at hand, you know, and yeah. the risk part of it too, of like, okay, well, I'm going to take a risk on this. Um, I'm not totally sure if this will new thing will end up working out. You know, what, what are your thoughts on that in built in painting this picture? Right. And, and I appreciate the question. And I, um, so look at, I, I am not, um, on the, you know, I don't really have never played kind of in the financial part, like the compensation part of the business and heavy finance and heavy quant, but it's clear that compensation models need to change, right? So the C-suite is is usually invested in certain number of months of return, right? Where they have to make sure that they're giving a, giving shareholders good value, and they they can't be wasting capital on projects, right? That fail. And I think so. I do think that the compensation models do not lend itself to long-term investments. And then, you know, I think, you know, I spent my career at an incumbent and I could write a book about why technology fail, projects fail in large companies. And, and it is not, um, it is no joke, right, that 80% of IT projects at any firm, healthcare, financial services across all sectors fail. And the reason that they fail is complex, but it's often, you know, culture, you've got, you know, bureaucrats and politics and everybody trying to play in their own sandbox, competing against really viscous IT stacks that have grown up over decades with mergers and acquisitions where you didn't have the right people in place that were able to make decisions about what tech to keep and what tech to retire. And then the last thing I'll say about it, because I really could write a book on this, and I think I've said it in another podcast, um, a lot of the large firms try to eat their elephants whole instead of in one bite at a time where they're trying to replatform mainframes instead of fix problems around the mainframe that delight clients in the meantime, right? They try to go behind a curtain and do some, uh, you know, billion dollar project and that's how much they often cost and they fail. So I think it's just a lot of old world thinking combined with the finances and the compensation. And, and what I've said is you've got another generation of people that are coming up behind you that are not going to have the patience that um, Gen X and millennials did with all of this. Right. You know, cause I also think about like the blockbuster example that we were chatting about, you know, where in, 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 for those who didn't see the, the, uh, the documentary, they, they interviewed one, I think it was the CEO who was there in the room and, and, and just 
basically said no to buying Netflix back. I think it was in 99, right? It was yeah, 99 I think so. And, and the thing, the thing that I kept thinking to myself was because this happens all the time with management and looking at new technology or, or considering an investment or an acquisition or, you know, just building something up in house to make things more efficient. It's, it's doing that. I don't know, maybe it's a cost analysis or not, but doing that just general analysis of like, is it too soon for us to be thinking of that? I have an awareness of it. And maybe at some point I want to do something, you know, new in technology that meets this potential new demand from this new consumer, you know, but when is that, when is it too soon? Is it, is it ever oh. too, too soon to think about some of these things? Oh, such a good question. I love that. Um, it, it can be too soon. And the, and the example that I like to give is that in the mid nineties, I was at Stanford in a, in a conference at Stanford and a futurist came and spoke to us and told us that the physical newspaper would be retired in the next 10 years because of technology. And he is not wrong that the physical newspaper will go away someday and that we all know that viewership, readership of actual papers has been on steep declines for a long time. He was wrong though about the timing, right? Because remember, I think it goes back to again, haptics. Silent generation and baby boomers were raised touching paper. So paper will not go away until those generations in many ways, and it sounds awful, literally physically die. So, um, and then Gen X has some relationships with paper. So yes, it can be too soon, but I wanna, I wanna answer the question about how do you know the difference? And maybe this goes again back to compensation that I don't understand that part of the business enough, but 10 years ago, I wrote a strategic plan and a white paper called The Future of Advice. And I basically said, um, advisors and clients will expect 100% frictionless exchanges across every channel, irrespective of the type of transaction. At that time, if you remember, a lot of executives were chasing robo as their shiny object. So they created a new business model without fixing their existing one. And as we know, right, I ended up being right about where we landed. Do you want to know why I was right? Not because I'm so smart, okay? It's because I spent hours and hours and hours in rooms with clients. And because I was in the very high net worth and upper high net worth segment of the market, I was spending time in the room with their heirs. And their heirs were Gen X. And... I was listening to what they wanted and what they wanted was frictionless exchanges. So I guess what I would say if I was a CEO is you've got to be in a room listening to your clients. And instead, most C-suites are talking to each other, meaning everybody else in the C-suite that's doing an echo chamber about what they think their clients want because they think they're the smartest people in the room. You have to be spending time with your clients and your client's next generation, whatever that is. And if Blockbuster had been doing that, Bob, they would be able to know that this was inevitable streaming. Right. Yeah. I mean, and the, the funny thing is, is that it wasn't even like they were, they were right. I mean, we keep talking about the doc. We're using that as our, as our main example here, but you know, they were right there. It was just a matter of, I, it, well, part of it was also, they just had a terrible balance sheet and, 
because right. he was going to go under no matter what. Right. But, and, and also, but I would even argue with, I mean, Netflix at that time, it wasn't a streaming play, right? It was, it was, a, I used to use it. It was back your mail day. service. You're right. Yeah. You're right. It was the mail service. So, I mean, yeah, they, they missed the boat in that they could have just been doing that sooner. And who knows if they'd made the acquisition, they would have had the talent in house to then think, all right, well, there's people in here now are pushing the idea of streaming and we should just do that now versus, you know, not buying Netflix and then, you know, them becoming the behemoth that they are, by the way, I'm not a shareholder in Netflix, but, but I'm neither, um, yeah, I'm neither yeah, am I. you know, but, but all right. I, I think we'll, we'll come back to that as an example, but, but okay. yeah, your thoughts are. Well, I was just going to say that, that the other question I think you're raising, which is a good one is, you know, is would the DNA of innovation still have been part of Netflix if they had been bought by Blockbuster? I think that's another great you topic. You said that way more eloquently than I ever <laughs> could have probably dreamed of. So yes, that is I, that was exactly what I was trying to say. <laughs> so yes, good. Please. Yes. Okay. So so your thoughts on that? I mean, could can that DNA transfer over? Well, uh, so then I, you know, again, I have to go back to my soapbox, which I I'm so sorry if people are tired about it, but stay on the soapbox. We're cool right. with that. No problem. <laughs> my soapbox is, you know, don't. Don't just get out of your echo chamber. Have have if you're if you're an incumbent, right? Not just a startup, because it, you know you know as well as anyone that startups have their own challenges, right? So we're not. That's not my level of expertise, but um, but for incumbents, have young people engaged in the conversation about relevance for your firm and and have a culture of innovation and make sure that your chief digital officer is not the only person responsible for innovation. Everybody has to be bought in to the idea that nothing that we're doing today is going to stay the same. And if you believe that, you're a dinosaur at hello. I mean, I'm sorry, you're just, you're just done for. <laughs> I couldn't agree with that more. <laughs> uh, I mean, could not agree with that more. Uh, so, okay. So now to our main topic today, you know, talking yeah. about Gen Z, you know, let's, let's start off with our overarching question here. Why is the Gen Z generation the ultimate disruptor versus other generations? So it, it, it absolutely, in my humble opinion, has to do with the fact that they are the first generation of human beings that have been born with a smartphone. And a lot of times on Twitter, people love to argue with me about when I say that because they think what I mean is that Generation Z only wants to use a smartphone. I'm not saying that at all, right? We know Generation Z and all generations are using digital platforms in all forms and they will continue to evolve as you and I both know. But that idea of your daughter being able to get so much richness and whether it's good or bad and you want to debate this and a lot of people with that movie about um, the social the social network one, I can't remember. The social dilemma. I haven't watched it yet. Social dilemma. But, but, I, but I, I, I know what you're saying. And, and, and to be fair, like it's not, you know, the only time we give her screen time is when she's doing FaceTime. But during that experience, it's- You it's, can see it. Yeah. You can just see that. Yeah. And look, I, I do a lot of keynotes and people always want to debate me about the science of screen time. 
we very severely monitored our kids' screen time when they were very little. So I, that isn't what I'm here to talk about. What I'm saying is, is that that experience is so intuitive. That's really at the bottom line, it's very intuitive. So I have become convinced that that, that, that experience, right, this, this significant haptic experience that is shaped right around the age of three will cause Generation Z to not tolerate bad experiences, whether they're online or offline, because their experience has been set by the phone. And that's in a, in, you know, two seconds or less that, or what, two minutes or less, that's exactly why I think Generation Z is a force to be reckoned with. So how does this have effects across multiple industries? You know, just that, that thesis right there, you know, let's, let's now write, let's write a white, write a white paper, write the white paper now, you know, how, how that affects disruption across so many industries that we're, we're seeing disruption in right now. Right. And, and well, new stuff popping up. Well, and so look at, I look at, I, I have tweeted a lot about kind of the degree to which I have been kind of, was kind of really made fun of at work over my Gen Z pastimes. And I'm going to tell you that what happened with the wall street bet situation was very vindicating, not because I predicted anything about that scenario specifically, right? But what I have been saying is that Generation Z, because of their native tendencies for social media, I mean, look at Caitlin, look at how good she is at social media. I'm serious, like- Oh, 100% agree. You will not, yeah, right? she's incredible. No, oh, yeah, no doubt. And it's and and most of it, I don't know if she would. I mean, I think she would say uh, it's innate, right? So, what I go on. No, no, sorry, no. I mean, well, my only comment was, you know, it's a combination of not just being a genuinely, gen, well, she's just a genuine, awesome person, but also just in general being a genuine human being and be able to translate that on social media. Like that's what's really that's fascinating to me. Something I it's think about all the time. Well, and look at, so when I started writing about this five years ago, that, that what I said was, is that native social media tendencies and innate feelings to like innate ways that they're using technology will cause disruption in ways that are unpredictable. So the whole thing that happened with Reddit, right, was unpredictable. But in a way, it was predictable in so far as you should expect that kind of unpredictability is kind of what I'm saying, right? And so um, they started using Robinhood because Robinhood was accessible. They were gamifying things, um, right? And I am not a shareholder in Robinhood, so let's be clear. I But what they were doing is appealing to that audience and demographic in a way that was not patronizing, right? Which a lot of the older incumbent firms do to younger generations, and they forced a disruption. So I I think that where the next big puck, right, is going in terms of completely underestimating uh, what is happening, I think, and you know this, is in esports. And 
I am, I will die on that hill that what is happening there is changing people's expectation of engagement and it will not stop at just one sector. Oh, I could not agree more. And, and to be fair, it's still something that I'm having such a difficult time understanding because I was one of those kids where, you know, I was always outside playing sports and I had, and I had a couple best friends growing up that they would say, Hey, come to the counter-strike bar and let's play counter-strike. And I sat there for five minutes. I said, get me the hell out of here. Cause I just don't get it. You know, I don't yep. understand. I'm not a game. I'm not a gamer in that sense. Like I just, I mean, I, I grew up with video games, but I, I just couldn't do that. So to, to have that experience and then now seeing that there's counter-strike tournaments and this, like it's, in, it, it's just absolutely incredible, you know, beyond anything that I could truly, really comprehend. Right. And I, and I think that that's, I think that's why it's so difficult, right? I don't game at all, but but just because I don't, do, like a lot, what happens is a lot of people that are made that have purchasing power, purchasing decision power in these big firms are so dismissive of it. Like, you know, video games are stupid. Esports is stupid. But look at what happened with video games. So it, let's look at the evolution of social media. Okay. When millennials. We're going to talk were, for hours. That was so, <laughs> so, this is great. This is so good. Sorry. I, go, 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 go. Sorry. So you think about Sorry. what happened with um, social media and millennials, right? Millennials, they, you know, were one-on-one -on -one with their phone in a lot of ways or doing one-to-one maybe with some other person on their phone. By the time Gen Z was really in their formative years, they were going, you know, they're on Twitch, talking to their friends, meeting up people on Discord. They, Generation Z has really been the reason that social media has become so social, right? Not just one dimensional. And that I think is shaping, you know, new business models coming out of discord and new business opportunities that most people like me could not have really predicted, but it, you could predict it better if you were at least paying attention to what in the heck is going on over there. So I, you know, that the, the whole thing about people's brains are being shaped by what is happening on these channels and in esports and in video games. And if you're not paying attention to that, I just think you are really potentially missing the boat. So if you're preparing to retire, I think it doesn't matter. But if you're still trying to be relevant, you should be paying attention. Absolutely. All right. So I, I want to learn more about the, the consumer preferences. You mentioned earlier that the Gen Z investor in general just does because they grew up with the phone in their hand, tablet, just screen time and 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 I'm and again we're not we're this isn't a parenting a podcast right. okay you know it, <laughs> at the end of the day I'm pretty sure my child is going to have a screen in front of her and you know what I'm going to want her to because I know that's the way in which she's probably going to be able to have a career in yep. every field yep so we're going to I'm uh, we're just going to I'm going to stop there on the on the parenting front but you know but in terms of not wanting to have a bad experience you know I want to understand this better like how, how, what does that mean and how does the shape the consumer preferences of this generation? Well, so I think it it's all about ease of doing business and convenience and not just thinking, because a lot of people get hung up on this. 
I am not sitting here telling you that Generation Z or, or Gen Alpha only wants to do things online. They actually don't. They are being raised by Gen X in, um, you know, as most, most of the demographic of their parents. And what you're finding is that they have hybrid tendencies where they like to research online and then go into the mall to physically touch things and then go back home and buy it online. So you're seeing kind of similar patterns across generations, but they're but they're approaching it differently, right? And and I, that speaks to, for as much as things change, they often always stay the same too, right? So um, where, where, where I think consumer preferences are changing is in how they want transactions done because they don't want it to be difficult. Like I am getting to the point where I do not like to do business with somebody that doesn't let me make an appointment online or text somebody like, are you on your way here? I don't want to have to talk on the phone. So it's those, I just think it's absolute ease of doing business. And then eventually for, you know, things I don't really understand, I do think you'll see like heavy AR, VR, alternate reality stuff kind of the stuff that Elon Musk probably should be on here talking about that, that will eventually Neuralink stuff that I don't understand. But I do think that that is the future because, because younger generations are so um, immersed in technology. Got it. I mean, is it coming from a place this is going to sound, I mean, I'm a millennial, but this is still going to sound like old man, Bob questions probably, <laughs> but like, I mean, is it, is it coming from a place that at least from what you're seeing with Gen Z is it coming from a place of wanting to do things more efficiently or just they want to have technology as part of every aspect of their human experience so that if it's not part of it, it's somewhat weird, you know? So, so I, so I think the answer is both. Okay. Right. And, and I, and, and so I'll tell you, I gave a keynote at Brandeis university about generation Z and how technology, right, was a, a huge motivator for them. I had the chance to sit in on the session with the students afterwards. Okay, this was several years ago. And I was taking notes. There was a physical therapist, a law student, a medical student, and somebody who was doing art and somebody else who wanted to do nonprofits. Okay. Sitting there, this is in 2017 or 18, okay, every single student for every single field without being, you know, whatever coached, picked up their phone at one point in their conversation to talk about how whatever they were building had something to do with their phone. I was like, oh my God, I'm so onto something here, right? Because they don't, my point, Bob, is that they don't even know they're doing it. So, when you ask what came first, the chicken or the egg, I think it's both, right? And and that's where I think people that are older and not paying attention are not understanding that it is part of who they are, right? The law student had a use case. The nonprofit person had a business that she wanted to build. And all of it revolved around technology, all of it, because it's who they are. It's just, I, I love how you distilled that question because it, it really was it's the chicken or the egg question, right? Like it's really, that's what it comes down to. Um, so, I mean, this is going to be like my, my social clip question. I have, you know, I have to ask, I mean, and I'm going to, I already assume the answer is probably going to be esports and gaming, but what, what areas are you seeing the most disruption already? 
you know, as a result of the Gen Z consumer and the Gen Z experience? Well, so that, that one is pretty easy. I, I do want to talk about what, what I think people should be paying attention to um, is for sure entertainment, right? I mean, that is a super easy one um, that I think is really relevant what's happening with Netflix and, you know, the way they have been able to disrupt. I, a lot of people I don't know know that a couple of years ago, they hired um, the CFO from Activision or EA. I can't remember, right? Because what are they doing? I believe that they're figuring out how to do uh, video games type of stuff, predict the endings of uh, interactive movies, predict the ending, change the ending, you know, based on some kind of interactivity. So Netflix and entertainment and esports, I think that whole stew, I think you'll, has been the most obvious thing for disruption. But what I, what I think is people should be paying attention to is how that bleeds into real life situations. So a company in Austin that I'm not associated with, I don't know anyone there called Interplay Learning, right, is just got an infusion of money. They are teaching skilled workers how to do their job using, using interactive AR, VR technology, gameplay kind of um, methods. And I think where people should be paying attention is ed tech, but not ed tech in the, I wanna do something about traditional learning structures, meaning I don't wanna, I wanna do something about the future of college. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about how are you teaching people using gamified technology in whatever sector you're in and how are you using that to inspire innovation and keep yourself relevant as a sector, I think is a super completely underestimated um, play for, for anyone. So what, what's failed so far? You know, where have there been companies or technology out there that are trying to build, I mean, I guess, all right, I already thought of one. But, Tell me. And I'm, I, it, I would say, what was it called? Quibi? The five minute, um, the, 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 the platform that had only content that was like 10 minutes long or something. Oh, I don't even remember. Yeah. I mean, it, like they, they just, I think there was only launched for like a few months and it was already gone and they, they had amazing talent and everything around it, creating content for it. But as a, and the, the bet being is that uh, people use their phones, one, use their phones all the time. And secondly, that they want to consume short, short content a lot, a lot of short content because of how much we use YouTube. Oh, right? got it, so, got it, got so, it. So it's creating higher quality, short, short form content and that this is the only platform where you only get that and you pay a monthly fee to get access. Okay, so here's what I'm gonna tell you is wrong with that. And I don't even remember them, but I'm gonna tell you and I'm not even gonna apologize for telling you what was wrong with that. They That was a business in search of a problem. The solution already existed. It's called YouTube and people already go on YouTube to figure out, you know, how to fix their sync. So, so that's, that is where I think we see technology, technology startups failing. I, I had lunch with a really good friend of mine today who works at SVB at Silicon Valley Bank. And we were talking about, there are so many startups that are, are searching for a problem. And it's like, my God, there are so many existing problems out there that need to be solved. 
you, you got, I mean, I would really think you need to fix problems that don't, that, that do exist. I mean, let's talk about interplay. You've, and again, I have nothing to do with them. I just find it fascinating, right? What you've seen is you've got a huge dearth of skilled workers out there in the world, right? People that don't want to be plumbers and mechanics, but we need those people at least right now to exist. And, and Gen Z and millennials are not interested in those in those types of jobs, because I think there's not a technology component. Think about the fact that what a company like Interplay, and I think we'll see others like them, are solving is training those kids to be plumbers and mechanics using technology, right? Meeting them where they are and then setting them off in the world to go get a real job. I mean, I live in Austin. It's April. We have not been able to get anybody to our house to fix stuff from that huge ice storm because there's nobody to fix. They're all booked, plumbers and sprinkler people and electricians. So think Interplay is using technology to solve a real world problem. And they're, and they're taking all of the components of school tuition is getting more expensive. Gen Z doesn't believe in traditional college, you know, um, trajectories like when I was growing up. They're taking all of that and reimagining what that might be. And those, I think, are the startups that are super interesting. They're solving real world problems with technology that's very bleeding edge. Very, um, yeah, thank you for that. By the way, like I it? hope everything gets, yeah, oh, absolutely. By the way, I hope everything gets solved quickly. I actually, believe it or not, my wife and I were in Austin during that storm. We got caught there for that week. Yeah, we were, yeah, it was, it was crazy. You told me not to swear, but can I say that it was a total shit show? Can I? Oh just no, say it was that, a total please? shit show. No, it was a total. It was an absolute shit show. I mean, did you lose? Did you lose everything? All the electricity, all that, everything. We didn't lose any of that because we're right by a fire station, so we were considered oh, nice. something. But I'm going to tell you, the damage to our house was significant, and we still haven't had it all fixed because there's no skilled labor. So, you know, there, there is like looking at holistically the problem and making sure that nobody is out there solving that problem is super, super interesting. And look, I, I want to say this about um, Robinhood. I think that Robinhood should have gamified investment acumen and financial acumen with the same vigor with which they gamified investing and they should have done the acumen part first. So that I think there's a huge need for interactive learning in the context of its experience, not like the place we just talked about, which was just doing learning outside of any context. I think um, the world is saved by good context and that's critical. Agreed. A hundred percent. I mean, if there's one thing that we, I think about probably the most, and I, and I don't just think about this because, you know, I'm in microcap investing, investing and whatnot, but it's the ed tech side of things, especially the financial education technology is trying to create a, I don't know. I don't know what, I don't even know what it is to create. Is it courses? Is it tech? Is it, what is it that you can create that can help the next generation of investors. I mean, we try on just the content creation side and, you know, reaching this generation with, with podcasts and content posting on YouTube and whatnot, you know, but 
it's that K through 12 of what is it that can help them learn or, or that we can actually say, hey, go and watch this or go and take this course, go and do this so that you can feel fully prepared to go in and, and, and invest or do anything having to do with finance. You know, that's, that's something that I think about on a daily basis. Well, and look at, I think that that was another huge missed opportunity by the incumbents after the financial crisis. I think that they should have all gotten together, all the major CEOs, and created an investment acumen program that they all invested in that looked and walked and talked the same from a branding perspective where they stopped competing with each other and lifted investment acumen and financial acumen to a level that was for the good of human humanity, right? And not, and stopped just competing with each other on this certain level playing field. If they had done that, I don't think that you would see the disenfranchisement that we've seen and, and people running away to alternate channels like FinTech where, you know, it's not as regulated. They're still kind of the wild west. None of that has really necessarily been good for consumers, but what hap- what's happening is consumers weren't getting what they needed. So, um, and, and I'd argue that that opportunity is gone. It's yes, gone. I totally it's agree gone. with you. Yep. Yeah. Cause you think these generations trust these they institutions? Nope. They do not give a shit nope. anymore. Mm-mm. It's gone. It's gone. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's so, it's fascinating that like that, uh, that would have been, right at, during the financial crisis or just after would have been the perfect time to say, you know what, enough of this. You know, not only do we need to create something for ourselves because we're all, we're doing highly risky crap stuff, you know, but just for that next generation, because their trust, I mean, that's why there was uh, Occupy Wall Street. That was why Wall Street bets happened. You know, that's why a lot of these events just happened as a result of, of, of just rebelling. That's right. Screw you guys. We don't need you. Well, and look at, I I have been in rooms with very senior executives who have told me, I don't care about millennials or Gen Z because they don't have any money. And I would argue that that is exactly what is wrong with the industry. And so is it any wonder that the Wall Street bets folks were all running to Robin Hood to place their trades. Um, and and so it's that again though goes back to why I care about Gen Z so much is because that kind of deep cynicism, I don't think it's good for humanity, I guess. No. Yeah, no, definitely not. <laughs> definitely not. A hundred percent. What what I mean, you you clearly have thought about this a lot too. I mean, what do you think? right now can be done to, you know, I mean, I don't listen, I don't want to give any way like any startup ideas that you might have, you know, <laughs> to solve this potential problem. But I mean, what are some of the, what's, what's been some of the, the, uh, let's, let's, if we had a brain trust, this is the, the Julie Bobby, Julia Bobby brain trust right now, you know, what are some of the things that you've thought about that, you know, you think could work or, you know, I, I don't know. What do you think? Well, so I'm going to be honest with you. This is, this is the million dollar question. So I am not an entrepreneur. I wish I was. And I have spent many sleepless nights um, trying to figure out what's missing, right? Where are their gaps and how do you fill the gaps? And I can't, I like haven't come up with any kind of billion dollar idea yet. Although I think what happened is I had some good ideas and didn't do anything about them. And now I'm like, well, like that was a good idea 10 years ago. Why didn't I do something about it? But 
where where my brain is right now is up on how do you is is how are you going to leverage what is happening with these people's brains around games and how they learn and then how do you make that relevant for sectors that they need in order to run their lives right because that's not going away and um i went into my my youngest son named Josh, who's got quite the personality on Twitter because he's so like, not he's not on Twitter, but he has a personality through me on Twitter. Everybody loves Josh. But I went in to go watch him on Minecraft yesterday. I know like it is unbelievable what they're doing. Right. And so though he, Josh is going to need to grow up and have a job someday. Come on, Bob, let's do a, let's do a company that's, that's solving a problem for them because they are, um, they're going to want to be engaging differently. And I, and I don't know that I think a lot of companies are um, going to be relevant to them. And I always say that relevance is a choice. That's my favorite hashtag. My other favorite one is evolve or die. These are Julia's hashtags besides Gen Z, Gen Z disruption. And, and it's, um, it's a great question about what do you need to build in order to be where they are because they have a ton of money and they're going to inherit a ton of money. And um, there is a lot of friction out there that needs to be solved. So how can the gamification of investing succeed? You know, like how can that, how can we turn what is clearly, you know, all the tools are out there now to gamify investing. And, you know, I remember the fantasy stock portfolios that we used to do and you try and win that after, you know, you put a couple stocks in for the quarter or whatever, you know, like, but, but I think that that's now old world. I don't know if that would really work anymore, but you know, what, what, what is, how can you gamify investing to the point that it becomes an educational experience? Well, and so I don't, well, so I don't, I think you need to be gamifying the acumen and um, education and awareness around it in a way that is compelling. I do think that that there is something there, there. And I just, I I don't have it at the tip of my fingers. There was just a, a thing that was published about, what little, how little these this generation even understands finance, and and yet they're still investing. And then you've got the emergence of DeFi and Bitcoin and all of that stuff, crypto, all that on the on the blockchain network. And you go, oh my god, like it's scary that they know so little. And so I do think it goes back to how. Are you teaching them the context in a way that is powerful and reaches the deep gray matter in their brain so that when they're doing that transaction, they understand what they're doing? And yeah. I, I, that's where I keep going. There's a huge gap. And, and when I see the, um, some of the firms that are out there that are trying to do investment acumen, I'm going to be honest, they're, they seem very patronizing and like they're really playing to really baby kids. And I just don't think you reach a 15 year old with that. So no way, no way at all. No, right. You've got a kid who's growing up playing Mortal Kombat and Call of Duty, and then you want to give them a baby app for how to learn investing. It's insulting. Yeah. It's like, and, and it's difficult to try and think about, all right, well, what's the balance between like, you know, uh, 
stuff for kids, right? Like, you know, maybe incorporating animals or something versus like, you know, going full, you know, what, uh, you know, cracks them all up like a Wolf of Wall Street type thing, which is horrible practices. And yet, you know, that was a huge movie and it got a lot of press and everything. As a microcap guy, part of my French, I friggin' hated it, you know, but... <laughs> But at the end of the day, like that's something that, you know, it's captured pop culture, right? You know, you see those memes, you know, Leo DiCaprio memes as Jordan Belford nonstop, you know, shooting the moon, all that kind of stuff, right? You know, so it's finding that happy medium that reaches them in a healthy way that also isn't like, it's not patronizing, but I don't know. Sometimes I think that it's somehow bringing together an influencer network where, and aggregating some content around that and pushing that out, you know, but you also don't want to come off as like you're pushing that this stuff on them, you know? Right. And that goes back again to the context. It's super hard, but, but I, I do think that there's something about kind of, uh, I, you know, there's large discord um, influencers that are doing some cool stuff to, to try to help educate. And, but again, a lot of that is they're pushing their own agenda um, and their own point of view, which may or may not be objective, right? Which again goes back to how do you teach them and start teaching them when they're very little about budgets, starting when they're in third grade, right? And then and then increasing it over time. It's a it's a um, it's a major problem that I think requires parents, firms, yeah. and the education system. So. Yeah, no, I, I I agree with you, and I and I'd argue that it's you're 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 100 right. I, honestly, like that, I, I don't even know why I said there's even more to add. But it really, it's it's about making sure that you have you. It's more about inventing the tools so that the people who have influence over that over millennials, sorry, not millennials, but like Gen Z, Gen Alpha, it's creating the tools for them to communicate some of these educational me- messages. Because at the end of the day, I, I think that it, it comes down to the personalities and the people that are then communicating to those generations versus just saying, okay, we're gonna create the platform and here's all the stuff and you're gonna take a test and a course and and you're gonna pass yeah, it. it doesn't work. Gold star, good for you. You know how to, you know how to <laughs> finance. Go on your merry way. Like that's not gonna work. No. No, it's just, but um, yeah, but uh, sorry, you're going to add. No, I'm, I'm good. I, I think you're absolutely right. And, um, you know, I, re- I, I go back to if you, if you were going to invent a company, would you invent it like a Robin Hood with the financial really heavy gamified acumen? And because they, they had credibility, they had, right. They understood their audience and instead of rewarding good behavior, they kind of rewarded bad behavior. Um, and so anyway, I don't, I don't mean to dunk on them because I think they did a lot of really cool stuff. And I think that was a huge missed opportunity. I, you're, that, that, I mean, that's it right there. It's like, it, sorry, the whole point of this is that eventually we're going to go into business together. And we're going to figure out this, this solution, right? You I'm know? in, I'm in. So, it, but, it, it, but I mean, you're basically right. It's being able to create a Robin hood that has all the tools and everything with adding in that heavy gamified um, teaching acumen component, you know, I mean, look, creating the Robin hood part. And I think that goodwill, yeah, that it's not easy to do, 
but it's much more attainable than this part. Like, yep. as you can tell, that just hasn't been done. And you know what, if Robin Hood would have done it, they would have. Right. Well, and so just, I don't know how much time. I, I don't think they had the will, but that's a whole other story. I, so let's just say, um, if, I don't know how much time we have, but I, I want to say good. something. We're good. We're good. Okay. I, I want to say something about this, right? So when I get a stock grant through my corporation, it where if I'm working at one of the big incumbent, for, like any major corporation in the United States, right? It gets processed through, um, and it gets processed through a company. I'm not, I don't want to dump on them. Okay. So I'm not going to say who it is. Right now, for me to finish the transaction, I have to get a piece of paper in the mail to finish opening my, getting even a login. Then I have to often mail in something, paper mail to Minneapolis. And then I have to go onto a different website. I Every year, I want to take my laptop and hurl it out the window. And, and every year I write the CEO because I'm crazy that way to say, how on earth is it that I cannot execute these shares without this horrendous process? Like what's happening there with getting, you know, shares granted to me or to you or whatever, that process exists. It is a real company. And there are so many businesses that we could be like, impacting with different seamless processes that also have education built into it. They are everywhere and, and so far behind. Um, there's gotta be a business that we're going to do together. Bob, come on, let's do it. I know. I just, we're, listen, I don't know if I have enough caffeine yet. I mean, we're so, <laughs> I, I think, I think we're on to something. It's, it's now, it's not just trying, it, it's really that acumen part of things, you know, it's just, it's trying to create these, whatever that is, you know, that like magic. That, yeah, yeah. Like that magic. I don't know if it's a personality that is the guiding force behind that, or if it's just the actual content itself or making it more animated or whatever, you know, I mean, that that's, that's the part that I think about quite a bit, you know, especially with what we're doing, what, what I'm just doing on a daily basis with, right. you know, sharing stories of companies and doing interviews like this, you know, it's just, I'm yeah, it, it's something that, you know, one day, one, one day. day, you know, maybe it'll be us. Maybe it won't be. I hope whoever it is, I wish them nothing but success to be quite frank. Same. Um, but so, okay. So we are, I mean, you know, look, we could go on for another hour or two just talking on this topic, but you know, I, I have to ask, you know, what, what would you say? And you kind of alluded to this already, but what would you say is an experience uh, that impacted you the most that put you on this road? today you kind of you've kind of mentioned one already but i mean i don't know i'm sure there's multiple that that got you here yeah um there 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 are multiple um the the one that really got me going on haptic memory and the importance of haptics and i've told this story before and i apologize to people that are listening that have heard it before but i was presenting at a major fintech conference 
talking about the urgent need to innovate and skate where the puck is headed, not where it is today. And a pretty well-known executive in the industry stopped me from the audience. I was um, on a panel and he told me that there had been no disruption heretofore and that fintechs were not eating market share and that I was basically being naive. And I got super frustrated debating this with him for in front of an audience and finally just said, whatever, my kids aren't going to do business with you and you might be dead by then, but it, it, and you won't care, but it's super frustrating that, right. And then I just ended it. So after a gentleman walked up to me, he introduced himself. He said, his name was Derek. He said he was a PhD in social psychology from Harvard. And he asked me if I knew why I said my kids would not do business with this expert, with this firm in New York. And I said, I just know because they're playing video games and I know what the process is behind this person who's talking look like. And he said, well, okay, that's fine. But here's why you said it. You said it because of haptics. And people do not understand how powerful haptic memory is in terms of driving consumer behavior. And he said, if you started blogging about that, because you're a good storyteller, you don't have to be an expert in haptics, you start telling stories about why that matters, and you will win in terms of how you're right. Not today, not tomorrow, but the next day. And that's what I went home and started researching it and I got goosebumps and I was reminded of that, that social psychologist, innovator, whatever at Stanford, who was completely wrong about the timing, but right about the sentiment. So what people don't understand is that haptics takes a long time because it sits literally in our fingertips with the generation. So it could be five, you know three to five generations before something really happens, but you and I get to be alive while the first generation of humans born with the smartphone is around. And that is very, very cool. And, and that's where I started like, wow, this is so amazing. I'm pretty sure that I, I looked away because I was writing that down as a potential title for this interview. You know, why the power of haptic memory and tech disruption. You know, I think, I mean, Love it. It, it goes hand in hand. I, hey, look, you got me convinced. I'm very, I'm, listen, I'm very, uh, I'm gullible though. So I'm an easy convinced. But well, like, <laughs> seriously but, though, think about but, but, that. But like, in all seriousness. He, I mean, he was like, nobody is talking about the haptics of this generation. The other thing is that everybody loves to talk about millennials being hyper technology savvy. I'm just going to tell you, they got nothing on Gen Z because they were not born with a smartphone. And that is the difference. Oh, I'm exhibit A of that. <laughs> okay, that is, that is like a no doubt about it. And if you saying that, I was like, yes, 100% true. I, I'm, I'm still an idiot when it comes to Instagram. <laughs> so, okay, all right. Well, to close out our interview today, you know, yep. um, my, my final question for you is, you know, let's say there's some CEOs or and investors listening to this right now. You know, what advice would you have for them when they should think about uh, not just investing in companies maybe that are targeted toward Gen Z, but also companies that may want to start thinking ahead to uh, make sure they have Gen Z in mind when they're building out their businesses? So the best advice that I have is, and I don't see a lot of people, I don't think paying attention to it, 
It is, do they have a DNA and a thirst for innovation? I mean, I know there's a lot of dunking on Jeff Bezos today on Twitter. I don't really know what's going on over there today about what's trending, but you read his annual letter and, and he has DNA, they have DNA of innovation, right? They are not sitting still. Um, I think Apple, especially under Steve Jobs, had that same um, perspective. Netflix has it. So are you investing in companies that have it in their DNA, that everyone is responsible for innovation, that they are not just um, okay with the status quo? And, and I would be very wary of any firm that you get a hint of, you know what, that's not our client. The minute somebody tells you that the younger generation is not their client, you know that they are only thinking about returns for right now. And good innovation takes years to do well. And that's why you needed to be thinking about it, at least in my space and wealth management. You needed to be thinking about it 15 years ago, not today. Because if you're thinking about it today, you're already irrelevant, right? Uh, that's such a... It's just so beautifully said. I, I just, I love, I love what you just said. That was, oh, that was just brilliant. All right. Well, with that, Julia, where can my audience go and find more information about you and follow all your insights and thoughts and and, and all everything? So I'm, I'm still working on what am I doing since I left my job in October. I should have had my act together sooner. So I am on Twitter. Um, I, I actually just had a really funny po- post that uh, kind of went crazy yesterday. You'll have to check it out. But um, uh, find me on Twitter. My DMs are open. And I just want to say it was delightful to get to chat with you. These are my favorite moments of the day talking about the future. And I really, it's been really great to meet you. Absolutely. Julie, the pleasure is all mine. I had so much fun. I learned just so much today. I, and I, I hope, I hope, uh, I hope everybody listening found value in what we talked about today. We really went, we went esoteric on things. We talked about the future. It, it's just, this is the kind of stuff that if you're trying, if you're really trying to think ahead in your investing strategy and companies are trying to think ahead and what they should do, these are the types of interviews that you need and, and people that you need to be listening to. So Julia, I, I heard nothing but great things about you and you lived far beyond the bill. So I'm just I'm so thankful that you joined me today and uh, I look forward to our next chat. Have a great night. Thank you, you too. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc. and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. This episode of the Planet Microcap Podcast is brought to you by Friedman LLP, a top 40 global accounting, tax, and business consulting and advisory firm, providing a full spectrum of services for public and private companies since 1924. Contact Friedman when you will need to raise capital and adhere to U.S. standards. The Friedman Partners will work diligently with you to provide the financial assurance, regulatory, and transactional services you need. When the stakes are highest, Friedman makes sure you are well equipped. For more information and to get a 
Friedman free consultation, please call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com. Again, for more information and a free consultation, call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com.